Oh man, it's good to be with you. Thanks for sharing, uh, sharing a little, a little slice of, of your life uh, here in Gilbert with me. Get to spend some time here with a number of your pastors and leaders last night. And it's just a joy to be with you this morning. If I could describe, uh, Rich was describing, if I could describe it with a, a different word, what it means to be part of Sovereign Grace Churches, to be part of something other than just your local church, I, I like to use the word communion. You, you celebrated this morning. We're a communion of churches, and you, you're, you share, share your life with Christ with other local churches, including Orange. We wouldn't exist in Old Town Orange, California, if it weren't for you and your encouragement and your support. Uh, I, I, I just happily report to you the, the nine churches, uh, the, the the relationship between the nine churches in the western United States with Sovereign Grace Churches, and I think there's some adoptions and church plants coming soon, uh, is, is, we'll say, more robust, more fruitful, more happy than I, than I, I can ever remember. And, and you could tell it's been a long time since I did an internship and uh, experienced the communion of local churches. So thank you. Thanks for being a part of us. We, we are Sovereign Grace Churches, even though your name is Center Church and mine is Sovereign Grace. We're, we're, we're together. We're in communion with one another. So thank you. It's a joy to be with you. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the first letter of Peter, chapter 1. The ESV translator heading opens the whole book. The heading reads, Born Again to a Living Hope. First Peter, chapter 1, beginning with verse uh, 1. I'm going to begin with verse 1, but actually our attention is going to be on three and following. And as you find your place, let me just orient you real quick. We're dropping in this book just for uh, one Sunday. This book, First Peter, is often overlooked and underappreciated in, in, the, in the New Testament. Uh, it lives in the shadow of the Apostle Paul's writings. But, but with what feels like an ever-increasingly, it has an ever-increasingly relevant message for us today, especially for those of us who live in the States. For First Peter is about being a Christian in a Christianity-opposed world. That's what First Peter's about, being a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian in a Christianity-opposed world? And I don't need to elaborate on this with you. You're living it. Gilbert Phoenix is a Christ-haunted world. Uh, it's, a, it's a post-Christian world. Everyone knows who Jesus is, but no longer thinks of him in terms of divine and divinity, more like the boogeyman out to get you. And what... And what and what you, what we believe and proclaim and bear witness to in our homes, our schools, our work, our neighborhoods, uh, on our sports teams, at work, even when we go to search on Amazon for a, a book now, all of it is no longer met with ambivalence, but rather opposition. Which isn't to say anything's really changed. Anything's really fundamentally changed today than it was, say, 100 years ago, or prior to COVID, which feels like 100 years ago. Or you name the, the politician or the policy or uh, the Dodgers losing last night. That feels like 100 years ago now. Don't do that. No, no. Come on, bear with me. Oh, you guys don't seem upset about it at all. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, the, my church, I mean, there's people on their knees this morning just... <laughs> A why, God? <laughs> we know why. Listen, today, maybe, maybe it's worse. Maybe it's less polite 
First Peter is about, but First Peter is about being a Christian in a Christianity opposed world where we find ourselves no longer comfortably fitting in. That's what's happening here. The original recipients of this letter, they they no longer conform to society. They were nonconformists. They were outsiders. They were refugees. Refugees. That's the right word. It's going to see it in the in the text. Who lived at odds with the values within their own communities. And subsequently, they were rejected by their neighbors and their peers. Because of their faith, they became exiles in their own homes. And so Peter writes to them and to us, and what we're about to read, it's, it's the first section of a ten-verse-long sentence. Ten-verse-long sentence in the original language. There were no periods there. It, a ten-verse-long sentence. There aren't many of them in the Bible that is so rich. Well, there are just, they're just few passages like this. These are the kinds of sentences and, and even just parts of sentences that change people's lives, that save people's lives. So would you look with me? First Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Our attention will be on 3 through 5. I'll read and pray. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The very words of God. Would you join me in a brief prayer? Father, Father, we quiet ourselves one more time this morning. We've been thinking and deliberating and counseling ourselves all week long about how to think about this world and our lives and the, especially the things that, that bother us and cause us to be uncomfortable, that, that don't meet our expectations. We've been listening to ourselves. Now, now counsel us. Counsel us. Surely your thoughts are higher. <laughs> your, your thoughts are higher. Your ways are wiser. Your intentions are even better than ours. So, so we ask, speak to us, change us, that we might not leave here the same as we arrived. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in, in recent years, last couple of years here, there have been a number of notable pastors who have committed suicide. T- two of them were just about 30 miles from uh, the church that I'm a part of in Southern California. One of, one of them, and one of them was named Jared Wilson. Uh, you might know this name, Jared Wilson. Jared was known for his advocacy for suicide prevention through an organization called Anthem of Hope. Anthem of Hope, whose mission is to amplify hope 
Amplify hope for those battling brokenness, depression, anxiety, self-harm, addiction, and suicide. Pa Pastor Jared, he was the founder of Anthem of Hope. And this was a tragedy where no one missed the irony. Even, even a pastor who leads an organization battling hopelessness can lose hope. Uh, listen, the, 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 the dark cloud that, that, that sometimes hangs over so many of us, even Christians, and I'm, I, I'm not speaking specifically of pastors, but pastors are Christians too, if you can believe it or not. Pastors are Christians too. The dark cloud that, that, that hangs over so many of us, is, it's a mix of spiritual and physiological issues. Don't, don't be fooled. I'll, I'll be very clear here. Listen, don't be fooled into thinking that somehow the Christian faith will uh, offer you a vaccine that prevents spiritual depression or mental illness. It, it doesn't. And, and I'd be remiss to if I didn't communicate a concern, a concern that even this morning some of you would be struggling silently with hopelessness that, that even sometimes gives birth to thoughts of suicide. The, the darkness, it, it, can, it can just keep sucking you in. No matter how much you preach the, the gospel to yourself, you, you feel alone and forsaken. As I read one describing it, it's as if you live, this might be you, you live with an awareness that you've murdered yourself a hundred times in your heart. This isn't a new phenomenon losing hope, especially for Christians who of all must, people must feel and see most deeply the sadness over sin, the, the grief, the disgust is exactly how we should feel. It's exactly how you should feel. The fallen world in which we live in, all of it, that's where the gospel meets us in a world full of pain and suffering. It, it, if it hasn't touched you yet, it will. It will. In fact, many, many, many of our favorite figures from church history they, they, they record their personal struggles with this. Spurgeon, for example, the first megachurch pastor, 1800s in London, he, he often had to retreat out of London and into France. And if you can imagine how desperate he was, he went to France, right? <laughs> you guys don't have something against the French. We do. Uh, <clears throat> he was unable to carry on with his ministry. Couldn't do it any longer. I got to get out of town. He warned younger pastors of, of this famously in his lecture entitled the, the, the Minister's Fainting Fits. All my kids said, amen. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, well, the list goes on. I, I visited old Prince, the old Princeton Cemetery. There's a cemetery in, for Princeton Seminary, which you now know as Princeton, in New Jersey, just before the pandemic. Went on a tour full of graves, because this is something interesting to me, full of graves of all the first-generation great theologians of America. And as I toured the cemetery, I was taken back by how many of their lives and their enduring works were defined by their weaknesses. B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield, one of, maybe one of the greatest theologians our country has ever produced. With, with Jonathan Edwards just around the corner, you, you wouldn't believe it, his grave's just around the corner. I stood over B.B. Warfield's grave and beside it lie Annie. Annie Warfield. Probably haven't heard of her. B.B. Warfield was an up-and-coming preacher. He was hot. 
he, he most likely would never have had time early on in his life when they got married, he and Annie, when they got married, because, because he had so much demands on his schedule that he would never be t- have time to write or teach in a seminary. But his wife, Annie, had the family illness. The family illness. And so Bibi, that's how I like to refer to him, Bibi Warfield, Bibi settled down at Princeton Seminary early on in life so he could have a work schedule that was manageable that permitted him to stay close to his home and his wife who who depended on him daily Annie had trouble just getting out of bed in the morning but today Bibi and Annie their ministry his books and teachings they fill pastors libraries around the world this isn't a new phenomenon and if you're struggling with it you're in the right place in a church full of people who are honest about struggles and failings and their feelings, even if their feelings don't make them look good, and who have found hope. You're in a, you're in a building, in a house that, of people that have found hope and hope in a very help, and help in a very helpless, hopeless world. Being with your pastoral team and me. I'm not immune to this either. But with all that said, Listen, with all that said, here's what makes what you and I experience different. The Christian experience, distinct. Now that we've established that in nowhere manner does what we believe as Christians inoculate us from sadness and depression that has plagued humanity since the first man, Adam, chose rebellion and self-fulfillment rather than obedience and fellowship with God. Here it is. Here's what's different about you and I who believe we have hope. We, we have hope. And if you're thinking right now, we're not the only ones with hope. And man, I hear that a lot. There's, there's stuff out there that offer to help us. If you think we're not the only ones with help, I'm here to set the record straight. Of course the world speaks of hope. Hope's everywhere around you. Everyone is hoping in something. Everyone is hoping something. But what passes for hope... What passes for hope is so often located in the things that are too small, too, too short-sighted, you know, just a little practice here and there, or, or irrational or baseless, misguided at best. How many times have you heard, how many times have I heard someone speaking cliches and platitudes, just happy thoughts at a, at a terrible moment in life or in a situation, just happy thoughts meant to distract us? distract us from our hopelessness. But there is a difference for you and I, especially, most importantly, critically, when we're talking about things that matter most. One of my, as one of my favorite authors commenting on the direction of our country and as a society, he wrote, in Adam, the first man, and all that he did in choosing himself rather than God, in Adam, things do not get better. He's looking at the around the world. Things do not get better in Adam, but in Christ. Oh, and this is what caught me. The future is impossibly bright. It's impossibly bright. That's the difference for us who believe the future is impossibly bright. What a hope. So, let me show you from our text. Watch the logic of the apostle unfold, 
fold as he begins to address people like you who have a lot to be sad about. And I have a lot to be sad about. I don't know about you, but I have a lot to be sad about. No outline? Listen, no outline. It's a runaway sentence. That's my specialty. (laughs) Verse 3, look with me again. Verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be... Oh, and there's an explanation point at the end of that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just stop there. This is the first sentence of the book that has the highest concentration of the word suffer in the entire Bible. More references to suffering are in 1 Peter per square inch of Bible pages than any else, anywhere else in the entire canon. And how does Peter begin the book? How does Peter begin the book? With worship. With worship, not sympathy. Ah, oh, I heard what's happening. Not, not empathy. I got it, I understand. Me too. Not groveling, not complaining, not 10 tips on how to get along with you, your incompetent staff and co-workers. No medical advice. That's a surprise. I think if, we, if Peter write in today, he might start with, have you tried? Whatever, and you fill in the blank of your medical advice. Have you tried? Not pol- politics, not, not any form of anything that his readers or you and I needed to do or need to do, or adjust, or change, or fix. Nothing. Just worship. He just starts with worship. And can you imagine? You're in what today is modern-day Turkey, right? There's, you're huddled with your closest friends, brothers and sisters in the faith who have been suffering setback after setback after setback. There's no blogs. There's... There's no Twitter. They're new Christians. There's no internet. There's no CNN. There's no instant maps and uh, graphics, no infographics for them to get a gauge on what's going on out there. There's no governor giving morning updates on the crisis, no idea. They have no idea how widespread the persecution against the church, them, had grown. Barely new Christians themselves, middle of the first century. Perhaps, perhaps some of their church members were already in prison. I'm pretty sure. Perhaps some of their friends have already been executed as martyrs. There's no, there was no book on anxiety for them. No biblical counselors present at this point. Right? No Paul Tripp. No David Powelson. No church picnics to cheer you up. No ladies' meetings to go and to unload your burdens and have carry. There are no conferences on this and what's going on in the world. I think they read that first sentence with a lack of information and wondering what's going on in the world, but, but a wave of relief just rolled over the congregation. Why? <laughs> why would... Why, oh, a, a call to worship, like you do every Sunday morning. It's almost a defiant tone to it. I know what's going on outside, but stand up and sing with me. Listen, every challenge you meet, every challenge we meet and face must first and foremost be met with a life-centering, like a compass, orienting, call to worship. That's first on your agenda. Don't assume it. Especially whether you're speaking it or someone else is speaking, don't assume it. Don't be weird about it, but don't assume it, right? Say it, speak it, 
When, when you or others are contemplating how, how the world isn't going according to plan and is only growing in disappointments and discouragements, don't let the first words out of your mouth be medical de- advice, right? Or your opinion about whatever. Let it be, blessed be his name. And again, don't, don't be weird when someone says, I, I'm sick, I got COVID. Blessed be his name. Don't, don't do that. But immediately pointing to the one who is our Father. But keep reading. Move on. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Oh my, so dense. Here it comes. According to His great mercy. What does that mean? According to every bit of what comes next is cast in the light of God's initiative. It's God's initiative, God's actions, God's purposes, God's mercy, greater than your failures, undeterred by our adverse circumstances and suffering and pain, a compassion that is sourced from God himself, God's mercy, that permeates every nook and cranny of your life, past, present, future, God's mercy. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Well, let, let Peter stir your affections. As elect exiles of the dispersion. That's who you are. Refugees. In the world, but not of the world. By nature, scattered and conflicted. Yet no longer the same person, the same people We were at what time, at one time, Peter takes us back, take us back. We are no longer what we were prior to encountering the power of God that was located in the message of the gospel that Christ had died for your sins, that when we believed and confessed, we were born again, we were remade. Oh, that'll make you happy. I'm not who I once was. I'm part of the kingdom of God breaking in. When you're bombarded with bad news, to be a Christian, listen, to be a Christian, here's an occupational hazard. As a Christian, to be a Christian is to be predisposed to depression. Predisposed to depression. To be hopeless. And here's why. And here's here's an, uh, an old description of what it feels like when that melancholy feel and that experience comes upon you. One, one wrote, an awareness that you're not home. I'm, I'm not where I belong. And you're separated from everything that's dear to you. That's what it feels like. We're exiles. As, a, as one old scholar, Cranefield, he comments here, it, listen, if all our attention is concentrated on the hostility or indifference of the world, and all that would have been tempting to write, hey, let me give you an update on what's going on in all these cities. There's riots. They're beating us. Some of us have been already killed for our faith. And Cranefield says, if all of our attention is concentrated on the hostility or indifference of the world or the deficiency of our own progress in the Christian life, and that can be discouraging, we may well be discouraged. Amen? Amen. And then he writes, at such times we need to be reminded that our election God's saving activity in your life 
our election is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Our origin lies not in the will of our flesh, as if I'm the one that started this, or in our idealism. Like, this is what it should be like. My life, my church, my family, my country. Or in human aspirations and plans, but in the eternal purposes of God. The eternal purposes of God. We have been born again. Keep reading verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It keeps getting better. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's that word hope. We have hope. Listen, if you're struggling to find hope, the concept of finding hope for your spiritual homesick soul in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, this might be an entirely new idea for you or one that you have forgotten. (laughs) When we speak of the new birth, we often think of the change that God works for us and in us. We, We are brought from death to life. I've experienced that. Many of you, most of you have experienced that. Peter speaks of our being born of an imperishable seed and seed through the the living word of God that was preached to us, the gospel. But, but listen, if we only think about what has happened to us and we struggle with interpreting our us experience, we might be puzzled by the statement about the resurrection here and its relevance to us. That's good for Jesus. What about me? Wrap Wrap your heart around the implications of our union with Christ as brothers and sisters. As one scholar said, once you have your eyes open to this concept of union with Christ, you'll find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. At once, the center, the center and the circumference of authentic human experience. If you, if we are united to Christ, then we are united to Him at all points in His activity on our behalf. We share with Jesus because we have been united to Him. We share in His death. We're baptized into his death. In his resurrection, we have been resurrected with Christ. In his ascension, we have been raised with him. In his heavenly session, as Lord and King, we sit with him in heavenly places so that our life is hid with Christ in God so that we will share with him and have a share in his promised return when Christ, who is our life, appears. My favorite preacher of all time, Sinclair Ferguson. This is what he says. You've got to change how you think about this. He says, rather than view ourselves first and foremost in the microcosmic context of our own progress. I've been born again. Look what, I've been animated by the Spirit. Look what's happening to me. Rather than think of it in a microcosm. The doctrine of our union with Christ sets us in the macrocosm of God's activity in redemptive history. The macrocosm of God's activity in redemptive history. Christ's resurrection from the dead spells hope for us, not just because he lives, 
but because by God's mercy in an unbreakable chain, He lives for us. We share in His life. 1 Corinthians 5. I was supposed to preach that this Sunday, but I'm not preaching that this Sunday. 1 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, He made Him, Jesus the Father, made Jesus who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the exchange. He lived. We live. Listen, the resurrection is not an isolated, supernatural oddity. I love, there's one wrote, proving how powerful, if apparently arbitrary, God can do whatever he wants to do. No. Nor is the resurrection is it all a way of showing that there is indeed a heaven awaiting us after death? It is the decisive event demonstrated, demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. He continues. Is it any wonder that people find it hard to believe in the resurrection if we don't throw our hats in the air? If, if, is there any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our liturgies, and you do? Is it any wonder that the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is celebrated as simply the one day, one day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom? Christ's resurrection spells hope for us, not just because he lives, but because by God's mercy, we have a share in his indestructible life forever. But go back, it gets better. Verse 3 again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to memorize it by the end of the sermon. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. A greater reality than your experience, what you can see, what you feel. Your feelings aren't always accurately demonstrating what we're reading here the joy of the nations the fountain of all pleasures the treasury of open of heaven has been opened wide for us to plunder and delight in and celebrate in and it's imperishable that's easy to what does imperishable mean it means it won't perish won't be destroyed undefiled unpolluted unfading not subject to decay kept in heaven for you kept in heaven for you waiting for you you have a reservation saved for you set aside for you and let's not assume that you know what he has been keeping for us <laughs> it's himself you worried that when you get there it won't be there it's ridiculous as it's him he's our portion in particular his son Jesus, our future, our treasure. Listen, John Piper, he says it best. God is the gospel in his book. He says the ultimate aim of the gospel is to display God's glory and remove every obstacle to our seeing it and savoring it as our highest 
treasure. That's the gospel. He says, behold, your God is the most gracious command and the best gift of the gospel. Behold your God. If we don't see him and savor him, we don't get it. Because he's it. That's our hope. That's our heaven. That's our inheritance. He is the prize. And all of this, Peter mentions later, sometimes necessary so that we get that. Our hope's not a feeling. Your hope's not a feeling. It, you don't, I know you could say, I feel hopeful. You could feel it. But it, but it is not a feeling. It's a person. It's, it's a person. Jesus. That's why our hope is a living hope. That's why our hope is true. That's why it's authentic. That's why it's life-saving. He is the inheritance kept for us. And listen, lastly, we are kept for it, for him. Verse 5, Peter writes, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We have an inheritance, and God is keeping it for us. And if you wonder, ever wonder whether or not you'll make it to the end last long enough to take possession of it, Peter digs one foot deeper. It's an inheritance kept for us, and we are kept for it, guarded for it. By whom? God Almighty. An invincible power. Talk about a financial advisor, a retirement specialist, an invincible power, and how does, how does he keep you for it? How is he keeping you for it? Through faith. Your faith. Our faith. The God who works for us, the God who works for us, also is working in us. Our faith is his way of keeping us. It's his gift. Why does God use faith? Why does he use faith as the instrument of his keeping power? I can think of all kinds of ways he could protect us. But he protects us, he keeps us, he guards us by our faith. Why? Why would he use faith? Because faith is not of our own doing. It's not our achievement. Your faith isn't because you believed enough. You've gotten that the light bulb's gone off. You were smart enough. No. It's a gift given to you to keep you for that, which is him. He is keeping you for him. From him, as Paul writes, through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Put your hope fully in him. Listen, put your hope fully in him. Cultivate your faith. Tend to your hearts. Seek out. Ask the Lord to help you with where there's little cracks and fissures of unbelief. You know how they come out for me? They come out with complaining. 
I love to complain. It's all in belief. It's all in belief. I don't get it. Don't, don't give up. Persevere in your faith. Today, lots of talk about people deconstructing their faith. Like it's a new thing. It's called unbelief. Don't, don't neglect being here, gathering together. That's why it's there. If you read, read that passage in Hebrews, the one that says don't neglect gathering together as some, because why, what happens? Because, because you're not here and they're not here, some have fallen away. They have not persevered. Cultivate your trust in Jesus. That's... That's a real place to put your hope. That's, that's hope. A confidence. Confidence, not only the one who, who lived and died and now rose from the grave, but is holding everything in place by the power of his word. Who should you trust? Who should we hope in? Jesus. That's why my favorite, one of my favorite hymns, oh, it ends, the chorus ends, it's super obscure, but it says, it calls you to look around and triumphantly, and I want to pray this way, triumphantly shouts out, the dead are alive and the lost are found. Look around, look around the room, think about your friends, your brothers and sisters. The dead are alive and the lost are found, the triumph and procession of our victorious Savior continues to this day and gives us delight that we could start like Peter begins with blessed. Blessed be our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your words. What would we, what would we be without your word? And in particular, reminded this morning, we would be hopeless. But Father, I pray you would give, grant the gift of faith. Lord, I pray you would strengthen our confidence in you. Lord, I pray for the one who has heard the gospel a thousand times and it bores him or her to death. Lord, this morning would you do what they can't do and I can't do and this church can't do? This world definitely can't offer, which would be new life, resurrection life, and an indestructible hope for a future, a future that is impossibly bright, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.